Welcome to Action Potential. I'm Sahan Ranamukharachi. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of change. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Action Potential podcast. Um, as we explore the cutting edge of remote physiological monitoring, I'm so excited to introduce Bill Van Antwerp, who's probably been one of the forefront leaders in this uh, realm of remote physiological monitoring. Um, so without further ado, I'd love for you to, Bill, uh, introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Bill Van Antwerp. Uh, I spent most of my career at Minimed, building insulin pumps and... Uh the first commercial approved by FDA CGM. Uh, and then Medtronic came in and, and bought Minimed and I continued along that path, looking at a variety of different um, things that we could monitor remotely. My firm belief is that feedback control, uh, drug delivery and feedback control medicine will be potentiated by uh, a variety of physiological monitors. So Bill, um... I've spent a lot of time in the world of biosensors, and I think it's probably fair to say, and maybe you, you probably would agree that you're probably one of the best experts when it comes to remote physiological monitoring, having seen this space grow from basically nothing to where it is today, where CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, are pretty much the standard of care for people living with insulin-dependent diabetes now. What has that journey been like? Can you walk us through your first, you know, entry point into Minimed? And, so, you know, um, that must be a rich experience, but particularly focused on kind of your early days at Minimed and, and maybe even focusing on a lot of the challenges you all faced at that time. So the start of Minimed, actually, um, I had been doing some consulting in insulin chemistry for, for Alman the founder of Minimed and uh, a bunch of other companies. And he decided that as a consultant, I was making way too much money. So he's going to make me an employee. <laughs> um, so he did. And I joined Minimed uh, originally to look at insulin for implantable insulin pumps. But it was clear from day one that that CGM, uh, which in those days did not exist at all, but there are a lot of published works about it, that CGM was going to be the future of, of diabetes. And we had three or four little tiny nascent uh, approaches. We had a physiological approach based on uh, bioluminescence. We had another one based on electrochemistry. We had a fully implanted sensor that lived inside your heart. But it became clear that, that what I like to tell people, sensing is easy. It's easy to sense glucose. It's easy to sense many things. Building a product around them is ridiculously hard. Um, Leland Clark invented the glucose sensor in 1961, um, and I was 10 then. Uh, and it took 40 years to get the first approved CGM to the marketplace. And the reason has to do with a lot of issues. Like I said, it's easy to build a single sensor. You can buy for five cents at your local pharmacy a, a finger stick strip that will tell you what your blood sugar is. But to build that into a product, it took a lot of work in terms of manufacturing. It's easy to build one. Can you build a million a month? That mm -hmm. became 
one of the big important journeys. The second was that the sensors that we're using often contain biological elements like an enzyme that you have to keep happy and creating a, an enzyme or any kind of biological construct that you can sterilize because you don't yeah. want to put it into a person unsterile was a significant uh, issue. So at Minimed in about 1988 or so, we decided we were going to build sensors in a semiconductor fab kind of way, a planar substrate, put all the chemistry on top, um, cut them out, original cut them out with, with scalpels under a microscope. Um, and we built sensors that actually worked. And what happened was uh, I and a friend of mine, a, a colleague at the time, uh, were trying to get Alman to give us money to build a automated sensor uh, okay. manufacturing line. And we went into a meeting in the, uh, in the corporate uh, boardroom and Al was there along with the other people on the board. And we said to Al, Al, give us $700,000 and we'll have you a working sensor in 90 days. Okay. And he said, sure. And then we kept talking and he said, guys, I said, yes, if I were you, I'd get back in the lab. So, <laughs> so John, Master Tatar and I, we walked out of the, the room and we said, holy crap, how are we going to do this? We got 90 days and we promised him a sensor. It but, turned out. But Bill, you had a working sensor at the time, at least one. No, 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 no. We had lots of published papers. Yeah. Uh, we had 90 days and it turned out that, that we were... We built a team of about 10 people, including who is the, the senior mechanical engineer, who's now my wife, um, okay. we, met, we met there. Uh, and we looked at each other and said, okay, this is gonna be the, the 90 day, 72 night uh, experience. And on day 88, and I still have it in a notebook, we had a first working CGM based polyimid sensor I have the traces, we, we put it in the lab, we put it in PBS, we put it in glucose, we put it back in PBS and the signal went up and the signal went down and then we taped it in our lab notebook, everyone signed it. So in this 88 day journey, uh, when did you know that you had the chemistry for this thing that you were building within 90 days in place? When did you like, can you, can you walk us through the decision making process to saying, okay, today's so, day 88, I think we're there to put it into people. So, Aside from the fact that your deadline was two days ago, two days away. So what happened was we, the, the issue was not the, the main technical issue was how to make the little circuit. We yep. had two two um, opposite approaches. We had one approach that used chrome and gold on polyimide, and we had another approach that used titanium and tungsten. Mm -hmm. All of the published literature was tied tungsten, but the problem okay. was etching it was a pain in the ass. Okay. So and and. We had a, as, as, as normal, we would bet a dinner. So there, there's a, two sides in the team. The loser had to buy the rest of the team dinner. Okay. Uh, and in this fact, this one I lost. I thought Ty Tungsten was gonna work. Mm -hmm. uh, my colleague said, no, gold chrome is gonna work because we could etch gold, we could etch chrome. Once yeah. we built yeah. the gold chrome, then the hard part was how to put the chemistry on. Yeah. Um, we, uh, I, I was the chemist, I was the only chemist in the group. At the time, uh, we had a, a physicist, we had a bunch of engineers and a, and a, and a purchasing guy. Anyway, we worked out the chemistry um, and getting the chemistry 
we followed a bunch of published literature, all of which was wrong. We optimized our own version. The hardest part, the hardest part was to realize that the enzyme needed a molecule of oxygen for a molecule of glucose. And in the body, there's a thousand glucoses for each oxygen. So we had to invent a membrane that allowed right. one glucose through for every thousand oxygens. And it's a controlling we, mechanism, right. So we, we invented that membrane. Uh, I built, oh, I don't know, 40 different versions, synthesized them in the lab, right. uh, 20 of which were absolutely impermeable to everything. Okay, including glucose. Fifteen of them were were um, were permeable to everything, and and yeah. two or three actually worked. Okay. Um, and and so we 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 ended up with a with a with a process. We didn't have a product yet, but we had a, we had a process. Mm -hmm. um, and we invented a way to insert them. Uh, the first insertion, I was the first patient. Um, the first insertion was brutal. It was I'm a. Guessing. I'm guessing that engineer who's now your wife was the first person to do it. To well, do she, was part of, she did it on me. <laughs> and, and basically the sensor was sitting in a little tube. Right. And the first insertion was a 16 gauge needle. You jabbed my abdomen with a 16 gauge needle, pulled the 16 gauge needle out and then slid the sensor in the hole where the needle had been. Right. That was no fun, but, yeah. but, the good news is I got to go to McDonald's and get a get a milkshake and watch my blood sugar go up and down. It worked. Um, we did no animal experiments. We just did experiments on on volunteers. Um, yep. And so, so once, you, once you saw the success that you had on your on you and then the McDonald's experiment, you decided, OK, you're going to write a protocol and then get healthy. volunteers well, no, no, to go through this. Still, we still needed an insertion mechanism that was not a needle with a hole. OK, so got we, it. We, and and the, the interesting part there was we needed a needle that's half right. so that the sensor could slide out. Mm. We did not think of crimping needles like we do now, right? That hadn't occurred yet. So we actually yeah. found a vendor in, uh, in uh, New Haven near Yale, uh, Connecticut hypodermic, who would make us half needles. Okay. And we put the tube inside the half needle and we, we, we built a small six person clinical study. Uh, mm. The data looked really, really good. Mm. Uh, and then we went on to a bigger um, uh, study, about 20 people. Uh, that data continued to look good. And then we went and talked to the FDA. Right. And the FDA right. said, this is a PMA device. And they defined <laughs> the pivotal clinical trial for us. Um, we ran the trial. Uh, we collected the data. Uh, in, and, you know, this was the early days of the late, this is early, 97 or 98 um, right. and the tools that we have now for doing calibration and analysis we didn't have any of that right. uh, in those days sensors got calibrated every 12 hours with a finger stick hmm. um, we had no Bill, idea what, what was it that what was it that dr drove you to say hey the place we should measure glucose for a continuous measurement is the interstitial fluid Ah, so one of the things that we had that no one else in the world had, we had 15 years experience of delivering insulin into mm, the subcutaneous. subcutaneous. So we had an insulin cannula that was right. this deep into the, into the tissue. Right. So we said to ourselves, well, we know that that's biologically relevant place. 
Insulin goes in there. Insulin is a much smaller molecule than glucose. Glucose should have no trouble. We made our glucose sensor exactly the same length as we made our infusion candles. Mm. Not, not because we thought there were better places to put it. We knew that glucose in the ISF was going to work. There have been a lot of published papers. Um, yeah. uh, a variety of people who had come before us had, had done all this. So we, we built our cannulas, though, that or we built our tubes exactly the length of our infusion candles because we knew or we thought we knew that the biology of that place was going to be appropriate. It turns out later that that we have learned that there's a time constant between the blood and the tissue that's important. But at the, in those days, we didn't know it. That's specific to glucose. Oh, specific to any molecule that you, you measure. Any molecule, any molecule that comes from the blood and has to get to the tissue will take yeah. time to diffuse to the tissue. So right. we, we ran the study and we uh, went to the FDA. And yeah, well, we went in there and then the FDA told us, oh, by the way, we're going to give you an approval, but you cannot give the patients the data. We can only give the data to the doc. Okay. So it was a it was a retrospective look. We had no nothing on our um, um, output device, which was a big giant laptop computer uh, that the patient could see. And for two years, we were not allowed to give data because the FDA was scared to death that someone was going to take a glucose sensor reading and I use it. And, uh, and, and once we got allowed to give numbers, we still had an adjunctive label that said, right. if you feel bad or before you dose, do a finger stick. Now, yeah. did people do it? No. <laughs> and in fact, <laughs> we ran this, this amazing small trial uh, but therein lies FDA's concern, right? Well, no, but it, it was interesting because we did a trial in kids whose parents were also type 1. Mm. And so we had a, you know, because it's a very, very strongly genetically driven. So we ran this trial and we put arrows on the pump that said your glucose is flat, it's going up, it's going down. We didn't tell anybody what they were for. And, but we gave numbers as well. And so we run the trial. And we said dose only on the number. And the parents followed the protocol perfectly. The kids who were mostly 10 and 11, we asked them, well, you, you were supposed to give yourself six units. Why did you give yourself seven? Oh, well, the arrow said I was going up fast, so I thought I needed more. The kids so on their own, without, without telling us yeah. what they were doing, did it. Yeah. Um, so that became clear to us that this was really going to be the way to... Um, to drive forward. So the forward. so so what we'd call today as a professional use CGM was what FDA tried to make you do, right? Uh, where every, the patient's blinded, but you realize through your studies that the patients are actually smarter than people give them credit for. That they are intuitively using the information presented to them to yep. make proper decisions as well. So while the risk factor is there, I mean, insulin is a lethal drug. Uh, <laughs> And, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so there, there is that inherent risk and the people who take um, insulin regularly have the risk of insulin and glucose imbalances. You still found that the data allowed them to take action proactively. And, and so that yeah, was and, 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 and to the point that there were always um, issues with some sensor readings, what we told people, listen, if you, if you, mm. if what, 
your sensor says and what your body feels are different, then do a finger stick. And yeah. we had really good patients. Uh, that quickly became uh, a very useful tool. Uh, what was surprising to us was that the very first uses of CGM were not in people with diabetes. The biggest use of CGM were companies trying to develop new diabetes therapies. So people like Roche and Novartis and Sanofi and Lilly were buying CGMs to run clinical trials with. And the thing that was also surprising to us, we went out and visited every single endocrinologist in the country in 2001. There were 1,500 of them. All of them said they would put them on all their patients. None including of them, type 2. Including type 2s. None of them did because what they soon realized was, what the hell do we do with all this data? We didn't know what to do with it. And yeah. so it did not reach critical mass for quite a long time. For 10 years, for 10 years, from 2000 till 2010, not many sensors were sold. What physicians would do is put them on their worst patients, their mm -hmm. most difficult patients. Patients right. who were in good control, if your HbA1c was seven, you don't need a sensor. Um, now, of course, I would guess somewhere in the north of 80% of, of type one diabetics are using CGM. And if you follow the, the literature, both Abbott and Dexcom and Medtronic to a limited extent are really moving forward into both type two use and wellness, uh, personalized nutrition and a whole variety of different uh, things that you can do with sensors. That's what's interesting is that, you know, Abbott and Dexcom between them have pretty much sewn up the diabetes market and there's no room for them to grow. Right. Except right. in type twos or wellness or nutrition or sports, uh, things like that. Right. There, there's a there's a, a lot I want to dig into on this on this topics. But you said where I'd probably go back to immediately is 10 years since it came to market and endocrinologists telling you that they'll all use it on all of their patients and then realizing it in only using it in their worst patients. What was the. What was the what was the thing that ticked when they finally said, okay, after ten years, hey, we're gonna actually start using this on at least insulin dependent so what, to start what, what, ha what happened was getting the first CGMs that were good enough to be non-adjunctive. Mm. So Medtronic and Dexcom and Abbott Navigator, the early mm. Abbott version all were labeled to finger stick before you could dose. Yeah. Uh, once we got the label to allow us to dose insulin on CGM, finger sticks in type ones went away. Mm. And the sensors got better and better. They got more reliable. They lasted longer. Um, there are still issues with CGM, of course. Um, yeah. But, but they are now the de facto way for people with diabetes to treat themselves, insulin using or not. Even right. a lot of type twos are using insulin, are using um, sensing to evaluate exercise regimes and things like that. Yeah, and and to and to modify diet and and you know yeah. uh, change their behavior towards uh, things that will help them control their conditions better. Um, 
that's really interesting. So it's really the non-adjunctive use where they could rely on the CGM data to make clinical decisions. <clears throat> and to your point, if their body symptoms are, or what their body is telling you is different from what the sensor is telling you, then of course do a finger prick. Right. Um, and so that still remains. And you know, Bill, um, the path to getting um, non-adjunctive use for continuous glucose monitors was a, was a pretty difficult one. Then getting calibration or the the reliance on finger pricks away from, removed from CGMs was again a big, big milestone. Um, so, but but it's still very important, it, at least for glucose, you could speak to glucose probably best uh, amongst others, uh, that the data that your sensor provides is really close to what is in fact reality. Well, the that's, reason I, <clears throat> that's the a reason I asked this question is, if, if, so I want to, I want to dig into this a little bit because, you know, people get hyped up over things that AI and ML can do. The people love to talk about, you know, um, non-invasive shining lights from the surface, ways of measuring glucose, but you have, you know, almost, if not more than four de decades under your belt now of really digging totally deep and <laughs> digging deep, finding successes and probably way more failures in trying to get data that actually people can make clinical decisions off of. And, and, and so can you, can you kind of tell us about your current perspective on all of the things that you've seen that are a lot of white noise and what should people think about when they think about sensor technologies that should give them clinically actionable data? So <laughs> it's a very interesting, is interesting point you bring up. Um, one of the things that always people ask you is how accurate is your sensor? And my answer is that in a beaker, it's 98% accurate. I have 2% errors. Mm -hmm. um, in the body, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is that I'm measuring glucose in a space that isn't the blood and then doing some fancy algorithmically driven approach to predict what the blood would be based on what signal I'm seeing from a sensor in the tissue, along with its history and the history of how its predictions have run over the last little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that part is really, really important to understand. Um, that, that what, what I'm measuring and what I'm predicting are two different things. And there's a step in there that involves uh, magic in the sense that, that, you know, I have a calibration approach and, and, and so on. Um, in terms of uh, AI and ML, I don't think there's enough data yet to make really good AI approach. Machine learning will help us build calibration algorithms, absolutely, mm -hmm. as we generate more and more and more data. But when I talk to the AI guys, they want you know 40 million data points in a data set for them to make good work. Uh, we, we just don't have them. In terms mm -hmm. of the, the um, non-invasive approaches, the Apple computer approaches uh, that come up every three months and every yeah, six months. Exactly. Every six months, I have to tell my boss why Apple isn't going to put us out of business by having a dream beam on the back of their watch. Um, I don't think those approaches are working. And I think that the dream beam is 10 years in the future and always will be. 
Mm. The physiology just does not allow for, now there are approaches that are non-invasive uh, that mm -hmm. re reverse autophoresis for sucking tissues, tissue um, uh, fluid out, out and test the skin surface. Nomura, Nomura Sugar Beet has a product in Europe that's, uh, that's available. Um, but the, the purely optical approaches aren't going to work. And the magic approaches, the high frequency impedance, bioimpedance spectroscopy, um, anything that doesn't measure glucose directly. So right. we've been doing this now since 2000. There have been 20 billion on the order of individual Spent. CGM measurements made. Okay. Uh, if you count all the people who have them and how often they get made. Uh, all of those are made using an enzyme. The enzyme is very specific. There's differences in chemistry, obviously, between the, the commercial products, but nobody has come up with a non-invasive way to do it. There is an optical sensor from, from a company called Eversense, uh, but it's not been a commercial success uh, because it goes in for 90 days and then you need to pull it out. Um, but again, it has a very specific glucose molecule. So to me, the approach, if you want to build a physiological sensor that people can use for making medical decisions, you have to measure the thing you're trying to measure directly, trying to infer its concentration from some other physical property isn't going to work because things are just, as uh, Richard Feynman used to say, things are just way more complicated. They are very more complicated. I, I can totally attest that, um, Bill. So, so when we started the uh, conversation, you said sensing is easy, building a product is ridiculously hard, making it at scale is ridiculously difficult to figure that out. Uh, and but but it's safe to say a lot of that you figured out already. At least you know Minimeds products or Medtronic Minimeds products are now commercially globally available at millions and millions of units per month. So it can be done. Uh, there's a lot of successes uh, in the CGM space. How should people think about, you know, non-glucose markers? Because I, I know that you work with a lot of different companies trying to sense a lot of different types of biomarkers. Um, what are some of your key grounding uh, lessons that you keep enforcing to people um, on a daily basis? <laughs> the lessons are the same. You firstly, you need to build a sensor that senses the molecule that you're trying to molecule or ion or complex, whatever you're trying to measure, you need to build a sensor that does that. And in my view, the simplest way to do that is always with some direct measurement rather than uh, mm -hmm. some, some inference. So I want to measure creatinine. I build a sensor for creatinine. I want to measure uh, ketone bodies, I build a sensor that measures ketones. If I want to measure sodium or potassium, I build an ion-specific electrode that is exquisitely sensitive to the, the, the uh, ion of, of interest and not so sensitive to other things. There's always a little bit of, 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 in any assay, there are what you call interfering materials. So, so that's it. But once you build that and you have it, uh, then the question becomes the same for, for that product as for any other product. Can I build them? Do I have a manufacturing process that will allow me to build them at scale? There are two approaches to this in the world. 
One approach would be to build them in a complicated way and individually calibrate it before I put it in a person. Mm -hmm. Sort of the approach that, that, that uh, says that every cent, I can't build them all the same, so I'm going to build them all different. I'm going to test them before I put them in. That's expensive and a, and a pain in the butt. Is there a commercial uh, sensor like that out there where they've gone that approach? Dexcom. Dexcom okay. individually calibrates all their sensors. Um, but but they're the high cost. Uh, so they recover that on the cost yeah. on uh, what they sell it for. Yeah. Okay. They're the high price in manufacturing. Their cogs are the highest. Abbott builds yeah. theirs on a reel-to-reel screen printing. They're the lowest cost. Uh, Medtronic mm-hmm. is somewhere in the middle, closer to Abbott. But mm-hmm. when you want to build them, if you want to have factory calibration, other than Explain by... that a little bit. So when I put a sensor in you, I want it to read whatever analyte I have without having to do a finger stick or having or to blood, do blood draw or some other, you know, if I'm looking at alcohol, can I do it without a... Uh, without yeah, a yeah. breathalyzer. So without having- so, so you mean like a, ref, a medically approved or standard of care reference method? Right, and, and you know, I don't want that. I wanna be able to put it on and get readings right now. So in the world of glucose, um, Abbott and Dexcom and Medtronic now in Europe, uh, you put it on and you get readings. You don't have to do finger sticks to calibrate it. With other analytes, you also don't wanna to have to do a blood draw. If I have to do creatinine, I have to do a blood draw and send it off to a lab. and. There's no uh, point of care measurement. So I want to do factory calibration. And to get to factory calibration, I have to make them all the same. Mm-hmm. So I need some way to build things all the same. And to me, the, the obvious thing to do is to mimic what the guys that build chips for your uh, laptop or for your phone do. They build these on semiconductor fab scale, right? And mm-hmm. the joy of that is that there is this huge, robust industry that has all of the bits and pieces that you ever need to build things. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you build them that way, uh, you you will be in you'll be in really good shape. Um, the, the details will depend on the, the way you need to do chemistry, the way you need to do the sensing, whatever the sensing approach is. Right? Um, if I'm doing electrochemistry, I have different kinds of things than if I do optically. If I do it optically, I need little tiny uh, engineered light pipes. There's, there's a lot of approaches, but the point is, mm-hmm. if, you want, if you want to avoid having to individually calibrate every piece, then the, the bottom line is you build them all the same. Mm-hmm. And once you build them all the same, now you've got a leg up, right? And by all the same, I, I mean, for a given lot of, of yeah. chemistry, right? Yeah. Every, every lot of chemistry will be different, but you'll have a lot number on the, on the sensor somewhere and you'll be able to read that and, and go from there. So that's it. And then more importantly, is there a clinical and regulatory path to getting the product approved? And most importantly, and this I learned from my boss at Medtronic, Becky, she, she, was, she was amazing. She would never ask, can we do something? she would always ask, should we do something? Is there an unmet need that people have for a given technology? And more importantly, is there a way to get paid for 
solving that unmet need. Al Mann told me once long ago, and I'll never forget it, if you solve a patient's problems, you'll make money. Mm-hmm. Um, Becky's point at, was that the first thing you think about is not can we do it? Because many, many people start out with a technology looking for a uh, problem. A problem. <laughs> They've got a hammer, they're yeah. looking for a nail. Uh, yeah. her, her point was, her point was she wanted a cabinet and you could use nails, you could use glue, you could use staples, you could build it. Yeah, perfectly. then you figure out, yeah, exactly. So her, but her point was that should we do it? So I try to get companies, I, I have companies who come to me and say, listen, I want to build a, a, a sensor for X. I said, mm-hmm. okay, uh, what do you want? What's the unmet need? How many patients? You know, and uh, there are a lot of things, a lot of things you can do, but right. the question is, what should you do? And if you look right. down the world of, of, of um, medical issues, there are a whole boatload of issues that could use technology to help people live better lives. You just pick yeah. one that you know. And then the question is, okay, should we do it? Yeah. Can we make money if we do it? Yeah. Now, can we do it? Right. And the, the can is almost always doable. Right. But I've seen a lot of people solve problems that weren't problems. <laughs> right. They built, they built a device that that had no use. People right. didn't buy. Bill, I have a few more questions and then we can wrap up this conversation, which has been really insightful. You've spent so much time in diabetes, uh, both on the pump side for insulin delivery and the CGM side. What excites you now, uh, con- especially considering the advances of diabetes? And I'm not saying all the problems are solved, but through your career, you must have seen so many clinical unmet needs that devastate someone living with diabetes be solved to some extent, uh, if not totally taken care of. Um, what excites you uh, about, you know, where that kind of technology could be leveraged to to bring, you know, peace and happiness to a lot other a lot of other people? So the the number, well, there there are a few things, right? One one during the work with with diabetes, particularly with type two diabetics, you realize that that um, the the consequences of uncontrolled diabetes are are all about kidneys. Mm-hmm. Having worked at Medtronic, who was all about hearts, you learn that there's this thing called the cardiorenal um, syndrome, because if you have a person with heart failure, you generate a lot of work to get their hearts to work better, but when their hearts work better, they kill their kidneys. So you have to take a holistic approach. We, I spent a bunch of time, a couple of years actually, building um, drug delivery systems for chronic kidney disease. Uh, ultimately, mm-hmm. Medtronic thought that that was not a useful thing. I don't know why, but they, it was too risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having worked with a bunch of nephrologists and a bunch of, of uh, kidney docs, I think that that the anything we can do to improve kidney health. And so we've looked at things like uh, looking at um, kidney markers in, in real time continuously, creatinine, looking at GFR. Uh, we have some ideas about how to do that in a very cool way. Uh, in, in your work, looking at, at potassium, which would be very important for um, the, 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 the nephrologists. 
Uh, the other thing that I would like to work on, and I, I'm a little bit leery, uh, the thing that probably needs the most, and I know this is not a, uh, uh, goes a little bit against what we just said, but the thing that, that one of the, the, the world really could use is non-invasive blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Cuff-free, non-invasive blood pressure. And I spent, I spent a lot of Vinod Koshla's money um, working on approaches to that. Uh, sadly, we were not successful. Uh, but those yeah. are the kinds of things that I think are, are important. Feedback yeah. control artificial pancreas is here. 780G, mm. it, it's here. The, the, mm -hmm. the math is, is straightforward. Sensors are good enough. What we need now is fast insulin, really fast insulin. Mm -hmm. So in 1990, we were, Al's, Al's man's biggest note to me every day for 20 years. What are we going to do today? We're going to build a sensor-controlled insulin delivery system, an artificial pancreas. And what's your vision? An artificial pancreas. And I've been still <laughs> working on it uh, now uh, many years later. Um, yeah. And um, the, the issues in those days were that the sensors weren't good enough. The, the, yeah. the pumps, pumps were ready and insulin wasn't ready. Now the yeah. sensors are way more good enough. Yeah. Pumps, pumps are good enough, but insulin is still too slow. And right. there are approaches to make insulin faster. That's going right. to happen. Um, so I, I think that's a, a big deal. I continue to think yeah. about the world of, of, of diabetes. But I'm also, yeah. I, I'm also very, um, very much a believer that the cardiorenal approach, the, the chronic kidney disease has been really neglected. People have spent yeah. a ton of money on diabetes. People mm -hmm. have spent zillions of dollars on cardiovascular health, but mm -hmm. not, not, nobody has the appreciation, I think, other than the patients and the nephrologists, has the appreciation that chronic kidney disease is, is indeed one of the biggest uh, issues that we need to think about. Yeah. that's. Really, really well said, and 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 that's this is exactly why we're putting a lot of emphasis on chronic kidney disease. Uh, last question uh, from me to you, as I as I started the conversation, by far you're probably the biggest sensor expert I've come across, and we talked about different topics. Uh, I'm sure as you've gone through this journey, uh, Bill, because when you started, you were the only company that actually were trying to make continuous glucose monitors. Now, if you Google it, you probably find hundreds, but there's you know four big ones, including Medtronic. Uh, there, undoubtedly, I think there's probably a lot of people who influenced those companies that came through youth. Is that true or false? Oh, that's true. The, the, guy, the, the guy that is the COO of Dexcom did his high school science project in my lab. <laughs> the guy that is the CEO of BioLink who just raised another 20 million on top of their hundred. Yeah. Did an internship in my lab. So right. we, we started the, and, and, you know, the thing that, that to me gives me the greatest um, joy. Um, we were on a, a, a flight to go diving. Uh, we were on a Singapore airlines flight from LA to Singapore. And one of the flight attendants had an insulin pump. Right. And I saw it and I asked her, how does this, how do you like your insulin pump? It's changed my life. And I pointed to, to my wife and I said, we built those for you. And, nice. and she was so, she brought a champagne. <laughs> nice. <laughs> when you see, when you see a patient yeah. 
wearing something that you helped build. It is the yeah. best feeling in the world. So, yeah. And and lots of people, you know, the guy that runs the Abbott sensor program, Udo yeah. Haas, uh, he, he was in Germany. We brought him to California to work at Minimed, uh, much to yeah. the annoyance of his mother, who yells at me every time she sees me, <laughs> for taking her son away from her. Uh, he's married now and has grand, she has grandkids, so he's, she's a little bit happier. But no, a lot of the groups, it's like it's like all the other places, right? Medtronic, Spawn, yeah. Boston Scientific, Spawn, Guidance, uh, the, the, the people who started it, mm. we spread out. And, and I'm still doing it at, at my uh, advanced age because I, I think there's still patients to be helped. Right. And uh, do you want to tell our uh, audience a little bit about uh, what you're working on currently as well, Bill? Because I think as to, to my earlier point, even though we think a lot of the unmet needs in diabetes are solved, there's still quite a lot that can help patients. Sure. And I'm working with a startup company who has, um, who is trying to solve the problem that we talked about earlier. What I measure, where I measure it is not what the clinical results are. So we have a startup company building a CGM. It's based uh, on the concept of testing in the very shallow dermis as opposed to the deep socket. In the skin, very shallow, closer very to the shallow, surface of the skin. And, uh, it's a traditional CGM, but we put it in a place that is, um, we think, physiologically more useful. Yeah. And so the, the lag times between when glucose shows up in the dermis or in the skin versus subcutaneous space allows patients to know they're glucose levels more in real time. And, and, and more importantly, I don't need a fancy algorithm to tell mm -hmm. them what their blood is, hopefully. Yeah. We're in yeah. clinical trials right now. We'll see how it goes. Right. And for our audience, uh, one of the other cool things Bill does is he spends uh, several months a year underwater. And as you can see in the, in the background, he probably takes some of the most stunning pictures of uh, life under the ocean uh, or in the ocean rather um, below ground uh, I should say and uh, if you'd like to uh, subscribe to his uh, photo feed we'll we'll ask Bill for the link to uh, to sign up um, and sure. post it at the on this uh, uh, on the release of this podcast but Bill thank you very much for spending some time with us my We've pleasure gone long, longer than we intended to only because it was so interesting uh, and, and thank you for sharing a lot of your lessons learned, experiences, successes, failures, and thanks for continuing to work on this uh, field of remote physiological monitoring and helping young companies um, to really make sure that they're on the right path to getting products, not just building sensors for publications, but really building products. Yep. Well, thank you guys for having me.